Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From a historical perspective, if we were to do things that were controversial or brought criticism, it was a threat to our survival. And I think that that lives in our, you know, lives in our DNA and in our cells and in our hearts and minds at some level. And, and what I noticed is when I started sharing that, you know, speaking to groups and talking with women, everyone gets it and everyone nods and a lot of people well up with tears because we know that's what we've been feeling. You're listening to Tara Moore on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. October 19th is getting closer, folks, and I'm so excited because Debbie Sorensen is going to join me at an upcoming retreat with Mindful Outdoor Retreats at Goodland Organics Coffee Farm in Goleta, California. And Goodland Organics Coffee Farm is a farm like no other. It was started by Kristen and Jay Rusky, who are good friends of our family, and they have built this real paradise of exotic fruits and coffee. It's one of the few places in uh, the United States where you can get farm to cup coffee, which is pretty wonderful. And this day was really designed for you to come and get a full experience of, of wellness, to really practice what you preach if you're a therapist. So you'll begin the day with farm to cup coffee. We'll have yoga and movement. We'll do some workshops, Debbie and I, around psychological flexibility. You'll have a locally sourced lunch and in, be able to walk through the coffee orchards and end the day with a really deeply restorative uh, sound healing session. So please sign up at drdianahill.com, D-R-D-I-A-N-A-H-I-L-L.com, and we really look forward to seeing you there. We feel like we've come full circle on the podcast. Diana today is bringing us an interview with Tara Moore, who writes about women's leadership, speaking up, and creating. And we talked about her work in our very first ever episode. And so it feels full circle for us to have her on talking more about this concept and to hearing her thoughts and how it's evolved over the last few years since she wrote the book, Playing Big. And for us, it's really exciting too, because we still think about her work as we continue to play big and as her concepts play out through the work that we're doing on this podcast. Absolutely. We've definitely navigated the inner critic and ways in which we've tried to hide, I think, uh, when it's felt really uncomfortable sometimes to put our voices out there or sometimes to self-promote. I know that's something that all three of us despise doing and are uncomfortable doing. And at the same time, I think that we've learned a lot about these two concepts of fear that she talks about in the podcast, the ones that the type of fear that is in, in our heads and limiting and the type of fear that is stepping into something bigger and exciting. And that's what this journey, I think, has really been for uh, all three of us at the beginning. Shout out to Ray, who was part of our first episode, and um, the three of us now. I actually reread the book recently, too, Diana, even before you did this interview. And I, I kept thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure just about everything in there 
has come up in the process of doing the podcast and putting our voices out there in the world. And one of the things that's been interesting is feedback. Mm -hmm. And we give each other feedback a lot on the show, on the episode. We also are interested in feedback from our listeners, of course, but it's been interesting for us being in the role of giving each other feedback and also accepting feedback from each other and deciding what to do with it. And actually for this very episode, we had a little feedback back and forth, Diana. Yes. How we usually do this is once one of us does a recording, we send it out to each other to listen to before we air or before you and I talk about it on the intro. And uh, you had a reaction to the word crone, which was really eye-opening and surprising to me because I talk about uh, this triple goddess of maiden, mother, and crone. And I, I really love that model and and that metaphor. But what was your reaction? Well, I love that concept too, the idea that we pass through different seasons of our lives and that as we go through different seasons of our lives, the amount of sort of ambition and wanting to play big that we have changes. I think that's really important. But it was just that one word, crone. I think to me, I have an association with kind of this grizzly, scary old hag. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I wondered if our listeners might too. But actually, Diana, you convinced me otherwise, because tell tell the listeners your vision is actually quite lovely of what a crone means. Oh, my vision is is this wise woman uh, that has had so much experience and that experience shows on her face and in her um, ways of navigating the world. And I aspire to to be a crone. (laughs) I'm excited to move into crone. And what's, I think what's interesting and kind of circling back to Tara Moore is that feed, what she says really clearly is that feedback says more about the audience and the person that's receiving, that's giving the feedback than actually than you. And that was important for even in that moment for us to look at because the feedback you were giving me around crone had a lot to do with your worldview and your experience of that word, which was really different from my experience of that word. And it was helpful to get that feedback because you reflect probably some of the demographic of our audience. And if I hadn't received that feedback, I, I wouldn't have known that someone may have a different perspective on the word than, than the one that I have. Yeah, I think I'm less familiar with that sort of myth, mythical archetype version of this. And so to me, I didn't have that same context with it. And one other thing that she talks about in the book is that we don't always have to accept people's feedback. It is helpful to, to understand how we're reaching our audience. And in this case, we decided to leave it in. So you'll get to hear the word crone in the episode. And to notice that just because I said that didn't mean that you had to take it out. And I think sometimes as women, we're trained that, oh, if someone tells us we should change something, we must do it. But in Mm -hmm. fact, that's not the case. We can learn from the feedback. And then, you know, if we always hang on feedback so closely, we might never speak out at all Mm -hmm. in our own voice. I love the part where she says not to take feedback from friends and family. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but to take feedback from your target audience. I mean, you're, you're sort of, you're a friend, but you're also kind of our target audience. And that was really helpful. So a lot of times we'll turn to people that it's not so helpful to get feedback from and choosing who you're asking feedback from is, is part of the process. And in the interview, you and Tara Moore talk about all kinds of other ways in which as women, we step into some discomfort around when we do put our voices out there or when we step into leadership or creative roles. Tara Moore has her MBA from Stanford and an undergraduate degree from Yale. And she's been a columnist with Huffington Post since 2010. She's, her work is in Harvard Business Review, Whole Living, the Financial Times, and a number of other media outlets. She lives in San Francisco with her two young kids and has really been influential in our lives. So if you are considering speaking up in some way or creating something new and putting it out in the world or stepping into a leadership role or or even giving other people feedback or anything like that. We hope you'll find something useful in this episode and in Tara's Moore's work in general. Welcome to the show, Tara Moore. My relationship with you began through your book about three years ago. I was with a group of psychologists and we were chatting at what now I guess men would call a mastermind retreat, but we call it sort of coming up for air, just you know, getting together as mothers and psychologists. And it was late at night and we were talking 
and we realized that maybe we had something to say that other people would want to hear. And at the same time, a couple of us were reading your book, Playing Big. And it was really that book that pushed us into the realm of taking this leap of doing the podcast. And our first episode was about your book and how uh, influential it was to us. So it's such a full circle and such a privilege to have you on the show. Mm, That is so meaningful to hear. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I was just listening to some of the conversation from that first episode and what struck me you know, I, I'll often get to hear notes from women saying like, I, you know, the book helped me do this or that, but I almost never get to eavesdrop right on people having their own conversation about the book. And it was very moving to hear because of course, when you write something, you know, one of the, one of the hopes is that it like, it it doesn't just spur certain actions, it spurs certain kinds of conversation. And, um, and I don't get to always hear those unless, you know, the ones that I'm not part of. So that was really fascinating to hear. Um, and, and then also I, I listened to part of the discussion about the, the epilogue about parenthood, which will, we should come back to that at some point in this conversation. Yes, <laughs> sure. because there's this interesting mirroring. You had written the book right at a time when you were pregnant and when we were reading it, and we were so curious, how is this going to yeah. change for her when she has this baby? Because playing big changes so yeah. much when you become a mother and you move yeah. From from maiden to mother, and then eventually crone. These different seasons of our lives, and now we're in another season. So it's very interesting. I'd love to talk more about motherhood and how it's impacted you. But let's start with with some of the premise of of playing big. And I think a good place to start is fear, because I think that's what shows up a lot for women. And in your book, probably the thing I share most with my clients these days is the two types of fear. Mm. that you talk about in the book. Can mm. you can you start with fear and how it relates to playing book big? Yes, yes, absolutely. So I was reading a book by Rabbi Alan Liu, who is a wonderful spiritual teacher. And in this book, he was talking about the Old Testament words, the ancient Hebrew words for describing fear. And he explains that there's actually these two different words. One of them is pahad, and his definition for pahad is it's used to describe the fear of imagined things or projected things. So when we imagine the worst case scenario that could happen, right, and and to put that in the context of our lives, you know, it's if I change careers, I'll bring my family to financial ruin, or if I share this idea, I'm going to be laughed at, right, those kinds of imagined fears or the movie projection we run of what could go wrong. And that's pahad. So that I think most of us are somewhat familiar with. But then he goes on to talk about this other term for fear that is used in some of the Old Testament stories, and that's yirah. And yirah has three definitions. It's one, the feeling we feel when we suddenly have more energy than we normally have. Something infuses us with a greater sense of energy. It's also a word we can use to describe how we feel if we're inhabiting a larger space than we're used to. You can take that as literal or metaphoric space. And then it's also the feeling we feel in the presence of the divine or the sacred. So this is when Moses is at the burning bush. This is the word describing how he feels in that moment, witnessing the divine. And When I read that, where my mind immediately went was these coaching sessions I had been doing with women. Um, And in particular, I always think about one, one of my very early clients, a woman sort of late in her career who had worked in, in banking for most of her career. And in our sessions, as she got more in touch with herself And we did some visioning work. There was a a session where the truth kind of spilled out. And it spilled out not just to me, but it was sort of the first time she was saying aloud to herself. She wanted to make some huge life changes. She wanted to move to the developing world. She wanted to shift her focus to service work. And this had been a long-held dream that she had barely kind of even allowed herself to think. And as she said it, it was 
um, palpable that sense of sacredness in the room. And you know, as a psychologist and many of the listeners know, right? Like when someone really lands in the truth or says what hasn't been allowed to be said, but has been there for a long time, there is that palpable sacredness. And so we both, I think, were felt that and she was crying. And then after maybe, I don't know, 90 seconds or something like that, it felt like this like fear cloud just like passed over. And suddenly it, all the follow-on thoughts came on, you know, how can I and what if, and all that pahad was back in the room, what Rabbi Lou would call pahad. But what I realized is I didn't have any word in my coaching training, and I don't think we get a word in our psychology PhD programs, right, for that yura, that right. that sacred, um, beautiful, heightened feeling that combines sort of fear and reverence and expansiveness, and that we really need that word, and we really need that concept so that when that's happening to us, we can name it and honor it, and also we need it a different toolkit as practitioners, we need a different toolkit for working with that than for Pahad. Like we we might all have strategies for Pahad. I'm going to cognitively think through why the worst scenario is unlikely, or I'm going to get into my body or whatever. But Yura, I believe we need to more witness, hold space for, breathe through, welcome. We we actually don't want to shift out of it. We want to let ourselves be guided by it. Um, and so that's been powerful and become, you know, one of the teachings for women and anyone um, who wants to learn to work with their fear wisely to know I've got these two different types of fear and they each merit a different response. And when I, some, when something brings you raw, I need to pay attention to that. Yeah. One of my big leaps was learning how to surf when my son was learning how to surf. And this moment when the wave picks up the board Mm. and the momentum Mm. of that, it lifts you up. And then all of a sudden you're like, I don't know if I can do this feeling. I'm Mm. going to fall over. I'm going to fall on my face. And it's that inner feeling, that embodied feeling of uncertainty, but momentum. Yeah. It's so powerful. And I, what I see in my practice, which is interesting with women is Sometimes that uncertainty momentum, two responses show up. Like one is, I have to actually make this go away because it's it's um, it's too loud. And ways in which I see women make it away go away is something like an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So I, want, I, I need to like restrict myself so I can't hear the calling, or it shows up and we move into it and we get criticized and critiqued, or we get this negative inner feedback going on, which then makes us pull away pretty quickly. Yes. And, you know, sometimes the way I think of it is when our ego feels threatened, like out of competition or comparison or failure, that's when we tend to feel pahad. Mm -hmm. But when our ego feels threatened because we're doing something that transcends our ego, it brings you raw. And so there is always this sense of, um, you know, if one of the concepts about the ego that really resonates with me is that, the, you know, the ego is the separate self and identifying completely with yourself as an individual separate self rather than as part of the larger fabric, rather than as an expression of the divine. And so the ego doesn't like things that start to blur the lines between self and world or self and other whether that's deep love or a passion where, you know, uh, you become one with your paintings or one with the music you're listening to or one with nature as you're running. So, you know, as you're describing that surfing example, it's the momentum. And it's also that's when the self and this larger force of the ocean, right, are joining together and the self isn't totally in control. So our egos don't like the things that you know, bring that because the ego wants to be the center of the universe. And if you are identified not with the ego, but with your connection, right, then the ego's power is diminished. And when we're in ego, we care a lot about what other people think, right? And you write a bit about why that is especially true for women. Can you speak to that? Yeah. And so when I, so before I wrote the book, Um, And I'll share this too, because I know you have a lot of 
practitioners in your audience in this sequence might be kind of relevant for how they think of their work. So for me, the sequence was coaching one-on-one clients, really seeing the patterns and kind of developing a model in my one-on-one coaching practice, and then starting to teach that model to groups and guide groups through it. And then once that felt very honed and, you know, very clear, demonstrated impact, then turning it into a book. So in that group phase, when I was um, beginning to do group work and doing a lot of um, distance learning programs with people on the phone and all that, we would teach um, about how do you handle criticism as a woman and if we're going to play big and right, because if women start sharing their real ideas and perspectives and innovation, well, they're bringing that into a very patriarchal world. So, you know, (laughs) probably step one thing that's going to happen is you're going to receive criticism. So um, we would talk about that and talk about tools for dealing with that. But on the phone, I started to notice that when I was like coaching women around this, could you do that thing that you think is going to be controversial? Can you do the thing your boss wouldn't like? I would hear these voices trembling and my gut sense was like, okay, the feeling here is that this person feels their life is threatened by this criticism. Like this is a a, a physical survival, very core primal fear that I'm yeah. gonna die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they weren't saying that, but I I could hear it and I could also relate to it because I had had that feeling myself. And so I, you know, after a number of those, I kind of was puzzled like, okay, why this doesn't make sense. You know, why is it that if your thesis advisor <laughs> says they don't like your topic, right. it feels like you're gonna die? Why is it that I feel like if I tell this person you know, my, this contractor for my business that I feel like their work was poor. I feel like I'm going to like even, you know, right. That kind of conflict. Um, why does that feel like a death? And then I started to think about our history as women and that for most of the past few thousand years, um, we as women didn't have the physical power to defend ourselves against threats, typically against stronger others, right? Physically stronger others. Um, So we couldn't protect ourselves with physical might. We didn't have political power. We couldn't vote to advance our needs or, um, you know, bring in the authorities to protect us. We didn't have financial power, right? If you don't have a bank account, you can't own anything. You can't get yourself to a safe or or get your children to a safe situation and survive on your own if you need to. So like what forms of power did we have? Really, if you think about what did we have at our disposal and what we had was the power to adapt ourselves, to be accepted, the power to notice what's going to fly in this group, in this community with this powerful person and adjust accordingly Um, the power to create harmony in relationships and survive that way. And so from that perspective, right, from a historical perspective, if we were to do things that were controversial or brought criticism, it was a threat to our survival. And I think that that lives in our, you know, lives in our DNA and in our cells and in our hearts and minds at some level. And, And what I noticed is when I started sharing that, you know, speaking, to groups and talking with women, everyone gets it and everyone nods and a lot of people well up with tears because we know that's what we've been feeling. Right. You write in in one of your blogs that women have been taught to quiet our voices, swallow our anger and argue ourselves out of our own good ideas. And some of the ways that we do that is the words we use when we communicate and you you Mm. coach us to look at some of our words. Uh, some of the things like, does that make sense? Or rushing through. And what's been interesting for me in doing this podcast is that in the beginning days, we talked a lot about the, the concepts of other researchers and people that we really admire. And then we started to have those people, the same people that we had talked about in the early shows, on the show. And I'm face to face with somebody that I really admire and I, and I had a really loud, clear voice early on, but as soon as they're present with me, especially if they're a male in power, mm-hmm. I find myself shrinking. And I'm so, I'm so curious about that. Can you speak about how we diminish our power through, through communication as women? 
Yeah, because we don't want to blame ourselves for that. It's not irrational, right? We've learned to do that as a survival strategy. There's lots of situations in which um, that is a pretty good strategy, right? Um, Past or maybe present. So the first thing is to kind of, I think, just have compassion for that and understand the reasons for it. And then from a conscious place to be able to kind of say, "Is is that still needed? How is that serving me or not? And do I want to make a shift? Um, But yeah, I can absolutely relate to that. And we, you know, we do it in all kinds of ways. There's the very obvious tangible ones that you're talking about of, you know, the, the speech habits of, I just think, or I'm thinking off the top of my head, but I'm not an expert in this, you know, but all that stuff. Um, And then the greater ways of really, doubting our ideas, not taking a seat at the table, not taking up space when we get there. Yesterday, I was working with a company, a very male-dominated company and male-dominated industry, working with their women. And I was sharing this study that I just love so much um, and kind of goes to what you're saying. It's a 2011 study um, that was looking at financial literacy levels around the world. So testing people on how much how much do they know about saving and banking and whatever. And when the results came back in, they found that in many of the countries where they had deployed this survey, there was a big gender gap where men had higher financial literacy than women. There were some countries where there was no gender gap. So, of course, the first question was, you know, is that cultural? Is that the education system in those countries? But it culturally and educationally, there wasn't a clear pattern. That didn't seem right. And then they realized, oh, wait, a slightly different version of the survey is was being used um, in the countries where a gender gap showed up and not. And the difference was that some of the surveys had in these multiple choice questions about various financial things, some of the um, surveys had an I don't know option. And some of the surveys didn't. And where there was an I don't know option, this gender gap showed up because far more women would choose the I don't know if they weren't 100% confident in their answer. But if you were forced to choose an answer because I don't know simply wasn't on the list, then women got the answer right just as often as the men. I think it's one of the most profound like studies on gender and confidence. Um, and it's not what it's not at all what they set out to study, which a lot of, you know, the best findings are, right, happen in that way. Um, so, yeah, when we are saying I have to be 100% certain of my idea, of my critique, of my whatever, you know, um, we're often, A, our male counterparts aren't doing that, and B, like, we're usually leaning toward the right answer. <laughs> um, and you know, now that I know about that study, I really try and like, just go with my leanings, you know, and not wait for the 100% certainty. Absolutely. But what I thought you were going to say is that the podcast started talking about other people's ideas. And now you're talking about your own ideas. So, but maybe that's next. That's next. And that's actually already happening more. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We are Mm -hmm. talking about our own ideas more and bringing more of our personal selves into the picture, which is a really vulnerable place, especially for a psychologist, a therapist Mm -hmm. (laughs) to enter into because our clients are listening to the podcast and there's Mm -hmm. this self-disclosure component that can, that can come up and it's this fine line, right. Of of what, what, how, and how we disclose and what's the function of the disclosure. Right. Certainly we bring more of ourselves in and the ones that we do bring more of ourselves in, I feel more of that. You're off. Mm. I feel it lift me up and I'm more excited. And and then I notice that the times that we cut corners with that, it falls a little flat. Mm. I've even noticed with you and your writings, how, how your blog has changed over time from your book, there's sort of a more nuanced uh, approach to even just the, this, this discussion of communication mm, and women. Yes, yes. Instead of just like cut that out, <laughs> stop doing that. It has yeah. it has more of a nuanced um, approach. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I would say there's there are many many topic areas where I kind of 
added layers or made some tweaks in how I like to talk about things um, since the book, which now came out five years ago. Core, the core is the same, but definitely some some added um, layers. And with the communication piece, when I first started writing about it, it was just about here's some of the limiting things women do in their speech, you know, that get in our way. All these sort of um, what what linguistics call hedges. I just this. I actually that. Does this make sense? I don't know, but you know, all those things. Um, and what I was hearing from women in my courses was that there was a whole cohort who were saying, no, no, I tried taking out all those things and I got the feedback that I'm too harsh, I'm too abrasive, I'm too aggressive. There was also a whole cohort saying, I took them out and this is awesome. People, you know, respond to my emails and take me seriously now. But there was this other group, you know, depending on workplace culture, depending on role, depending on industry and just sort of how they come, how that individual communicates where that, that wasn't going to work. And so we had to really layer back in um, how do you continue to bring the warmth? How do you, as a woman, that unfortunately the bar, the level of warmth we need to constantly communicate is unfairly high for a lot of us. Um, how do you make sure people still feel connected and get that sense of likability and really just, you know, how do we do our best to cope with the double bind that we do want to seem competent but we also know from the research that women who seem highly competent, particularly if they're n- not in close relationship with others, like a first impression or from a distance, those women often are perceived as unlikable and that can have a negative career impact. So we have to navigate that. Um, and I think since I wrote the book, I'm more open now about when I teach that communication stuff, I share more that this is the hardest module for me to teach because I'm the most ambivalent about it um, because it's really when, you know, the point where you're teaching women strategies to try and communicate warmth while being perceived as confident, you're really teaching to adapt to the world's rules. And I don't like that. You know, I would much, I, 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 I'm much more comfortable with the topics where we're, really connecting to our inner voices and um, it's not about tactics to survive within the patriarchy, basically. So we talk more about that explicitly now than I used to. Right. Cause there could be a little bit of a good girl syndrome to that of, okay, now I need to follow Tara Moore's rules about, oops, oh no, I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that it, then it just, it's, it sort of has this catch 22 about it. Or just like, really, do I really have to make everyone feel like I'm so nice every time I say anything, you know, my counterpart Mike doesn't need to do that. One of the, the things that you talk a lot about is unhooking from praise and criticism. And I had this wake up call recently in reading uh, your work around that. I'm probably the only 40 something year old that is not, and has never been on Facebook, which is digital minimalism. And maybe I'm not on these these social media um, out, outlets because I'm sort of terrified of both praise and criticism. Hmm. Both of them can throw me off listening to my own heart. And I'd love your, your perspective on that, how social media has become this form of praise and criticism and how it throws hmm. women off. And then how do we navigate that given the world that we're in that we may choose to be in it? Yeah. Well, I guess I hear two things and I, I would want to pull apart um, the terrified of and the sort of discernment that this gets in the way of me following my heart, you know, and that to me, having the clarity to to say, I see that this distracts from my connection with myself and my autonomous decision-making, therefore I'm opting out. That seems great. <laughs> like, oh, I'm, really I'm relieved. 90% of the time I'm relieved because I hear about yeah. how, it's, yeah, yeah. how it's not helpful. Yeah. And, and if it feels super terrifying, you know, that might be interesting to look at why. Right. Uh, I think that... There's so much that is wonderful. I really do, you know, about what, about social media and what's available for technology now. I think uh, many 
social justice conversations and um, voices that otherwise would be un- not not heard and and voices that otherwise would not have a platform do because of these technologies. Um, as a mom, you know, the sort of alternative philosophies and educational movements that I can get exposed to through that. I really value that. So I think there's so much positive. Um, and I think there's a lot that's just uncharted territory in terms of how it affects sense of self and a kind of self objectification that happens. Um, the loss of sort of the private realm. I mean, that's been really big for me because I just feel very protective of our, our family life and don't like to share anything about it, but that's a little, and I don't, but uh, you know, in terms of pictures and stories and stuff like that, but I, I feel the pressure that I'm expected to because I'm like a content creator and it's confusing if so much of what happens in my day every day now has to do with family life. And it's like, well, there's a ton of rich material there, but it feels completely unappealing to me to share it with strangers. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we have to really be very discerning, you know, in how we're, how we're working with it. So you talk about motherhood and you have two mm-hmm. now? Is that yeah. Right? Yeah. How has your perspective changed on playing big since becoming a mother? Yeah. Well, I'll say the, the portion that I caught of your, the first episode where you all were discussing the epilogue to the book or the afterward where I was writing about motherhood and playing big, you know, with my three or four month old at the time. And you were saying, and then she says this, and first of all, you have to understand, I'm like listening, you know, very curiously for what I did say, because now I haven't slept in six years. So I have no idea what I wrote anywhere. You know, that's not part that I revisited. So I'm like, I don't know, what did I say? Um, And then I heard you say, and then, you know, Tara asks, like, does motherhood have to change everything? And then she says, no. And I like, I laughed. I laughed hysterically out loud when I heard that. Um, Yeah. So, you know, at some point in my son's early life, I wrote um, a post about this, this feeling of being reorganized by motherhood, you know, and that was the word that kind of was coming up for me, like change, changed by motherhood. I don't think, you know, suggests the profundity of it. I feel my parts have been (laughs) rearranged, like... Literally as well. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah, literally also, but like just, yeah, everything shifted. Um, and I don't think I really have language for exactly how, um, but I think, you know, the, the sort of maiden self that you were referring to before, um, and that person's priorities and that person's dreams and that person's, you know, sense of trajectory for her life. Like, I think that more than expected to, I, there's a letting go and a reinvention. Um, and I must say, I mean, one thing I do often say to friends, this is, you know, I don't, I don't feel I have many coherent thoughts about it or shareable thoughts because I'm still so in the middle of it. Um, but I, I feel, you know, as someone who, kind of, you know, was went to the, went to the work-life family balance panels before I had kids at the conferences. And, you know, when I was in business school, there was a whole, there's a whole wonderful class at Stanford called work and family um, that looks at models for combining work and family, Um, you know, and conversation somehow, you know, the impression I got from all those things or the magazine articles, the impression I got was that it's all about the time and like this, the, the time constraints of that and that you're trying to balance the time. And so it's a question of like, how many hours will you work and how do you have enough hours in the day? And one of the things that's really shocked me is that I, I don't feel the struggle for me are around a constraint of time. I feel it's much more about energy and energy in terms of literal, just the energy I have, but also just focus and that where is, you know, 
how many places can your attention really go at once? And how many things can your life really be about at once? Like that's been much harder and that caught me off guard because yeah. Well, how, I think the, the add on to that is how many callings can I have at once? Mm-hmm. That's what I really struggle with mm-hmm. because I love being a mother I want to be there at the field trip and cleaning out the like applesauce in the backpack and finding the, I want to do all that stuff. And I love my work. I want to be seeing clients and I feel so much Jura that Mm. sometimes it becomes overwhelming Mm -hmm. because I, I want to be pursuing all these things and I get in this, this mode of, of caring so much in so many different arenas. And then always my default, which is sort of interesting, is then I forget about myself. Mm. And, and for one, of my, my, one of my playing bigs this year was going to Peru. My mom grew up in Peru, mm. and I've, I've never been there, and I always wanted to go, and I went with my mom. Uh, and mm. we went to this yoga retreat, and it was just the two of us, and it was probably the best two weeks of my entire mm. life going to Peru with my mom. And now what I do when I get into this place of overwhelm of too many callings is I start to uh, search flights <laughs> to Peru. And I keep on, I kept on telling my partner, I just want to go to Peru. I just want to go back to Peru. You don't understand about Peru. And I was, I was working with my, my coach and mentor and she said, okay, honey, you can't go to Peru. You got two kids, you got this career. But what you need to do is on your daily planner, you need to mark out Peru. Mm-hmm. Like you got to get an hour where you write down Peru and whatever Peru is, that's what you're doing because Peru can be here. Yeah. And that was, that was a game changer. But at the same time, I feel, I still feel that like pulled yeah. in so many ways because my heart is, is so much bigger with kids in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How yeah. do you navigate that? <laughs> well, I can, I can definitely relate. Um, and, you know, one thing that comes to mind is um, there is one of the sort of central prayers in Judaism is called the Shema. Um, And it's a one line prayer um, here, like H E A R here. So here, like hear this call that God is one. And, when you say the prayer, you cover your eyes and um, you take this gesture of covering your eyes so that you're not distracted by the multiplicity of the world and that you're actually connecting to the oneness. And so with our busy lives, you know, and our many passions and callings, if we're, if we're viewing it that way as sort of the topics of our callings, which maybe makes sense when we have less of a full plate, you know, but if we're viewing it that way, when there's so many that are so important and they begin to feel distinct from each other, that is going to be very overwhelming, but there is a way I think to see it because it's all, it's all your spirit and your heart that is actually probably wanting to move through all those things in, in very much the same way energetically. And so that's really only one thing. Um, and that requires kind of turning away from, from how the world might look at or evaluate what you're doing, right? Yes, yes. Can you speak to uh, people that, that maybe don't know what their calling is or feel like they don't, they're mm-hmm. not sure? Right. How do you find your calling? Yeah, so... You know, when this comes up in courses or groups that I'm speaking to, and I just don't know, you know, and then I usually say one of two things. One is, you know, are you sure there is not something that has been nagging at you or comes up periodically again and again, and it just seems so impossible or so, you know, um, out of the box that you brush it aside? And almost everybody has one of those. Or I say um, something like, you know, okay, if you could do anything you wanted, what would be, what's one thing that would be so delicious and delightful that it feels like it would be too good to be true? And what I can tell you is either of those questions, people 
always have like an absurdly specific answer. Yes. Like the, you know, enough that then we can all laugh about it together. It's like, I just don't know what my calling is. And I've searched to search. Okay. You know, if you could design anything you wanted, what would it be? Oh, I would have a retreat center on this Island of Hawaii that I visited last year. And I would do this and that, you know, or I would very clear vision comes out. And actually that example isn't totally correct because it's always a long held one. It's not last year. It's like, oh, actually, you know, for 10 years. And in fact, I have a good friend who, um, um, Grace, who started the Hivery here, which is a women's co-working space, an incredible place. If you're listening and you're in the Bay Area, check out the Hivery. Um, and she's such an inspiring person, but she always tells a story about the founding of the Hivery where she had had an injury. And so while she was laid up and just resting, she was journaling about sort of what she wanted in her next chapter. And she started uncovering all these thoughts about this center she wanted to create for women where they could work and meet each other and da, da, da. And she journaled the whole thing. And then she called her friend and she was like, I, you know, I've been, I've had the most amazing idea and here's what it is. And she shared some of the notes from her journal and her friends said, Grace, that's great. But you told me about this idea 10 years ago. Exactly. Right. So yeah, we do know, you know, we do know, but we do have to give ourselves permission to say, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to accept that that's the idea I have, even if right now I have no idea why I have it or how it could happen. The what really has to be welcomed before we evaluate the how. Right. And we need to look at the ways in which we're going into hiding. Yes. Yes. Which we are amazingly adept at. (laughs) Yeah. So some of those ways are, are what, how do we, how do we hide? Um, Over polishing our work and over preparing, curating other people's voices instead of sharing our own. Um, ever more education, you know, one more degree, one more certification. Um, something I call this before that, which is when we make up a narrative about the order that things need to happen in. And we really tend to believe it's true. We don't realize we're doing it. So it's like, well, I want to start a podcast, but before I start a podcast, you know, I, I need to have active, active social media, but to have active social media, I need a logo for my business. So now instead of starting a podcast, I'm interviewing logo creators. Right. So we like a really are amazing at avoiding the direct path. Yeah. Yeah. And I do all of these too. You know, mm-hmm. that's how I'm good at recognizing them in all of us. Oh, I don't doubt that, that you, that, that a lot of this came from your own inner searching yeah. of, of yes. what, what am I doing? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think something that I would be curious about you writing a little bit more on that you mentioned in that hivery is the role of women supporting women yeah. and sort of the wolf pack and how much that, I feel like that is that's the whole reason why I can do this podcast is because of the women that I'm doing it with. We inspire, support, love each other. Mm -hmm. We give feedback to each other and we navigate that. And how how have you used the group in your playing big? And yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's, you're going to laugh, but we just added this fall. We added a new module to all the courses that's called women, women supporting women. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Perfect. So we're on the right track. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I think I have not talked a ton about it because uh, it really, like, I'm an only child and, and, and I was raised in a house where there was a lot of emphasis on my potential as an individual. So that was sort of my orientation. And so then when I came to playing big, it was very much through a lens of like, how am I going to get my own inner work in gear and access my own voice. So it's a very individual focused. And you were at schools with a lot of men. Yes. <laughs> you know, business yeah. school yeah. at Stanford. Yeah. Yeah. Challenging. And not yeah. a ton being done, you know, in those traditional educational environments to really right foster that. Um, so yes. And, you know, uh, I would say since I became a mom, my business became much more team oriented where I do, you know, I'm still very much driving the content, but um, I'm quite removed from the 
technical side and the, you know, just everything except the content really. And I have a wonderful team. And so my work, which was very individual in the early days of sort of blogging and developing the courses is now really embedded in a team. Um, And so there very much is that, you know, women supporting women. But also one of the reasons we wanted to add that to the course um, well, a couple. One, when I went on book tour with Playing Big, the question that came up in every single event that like wasn't at all addressed in the book and it came up everywhere is some woman would raise her hand and say, why have the meanest bosses I've had been women? Right. And so that's just like this territory of how we are with each other and how internalized patriarchy comes out in us hurting and policing each other is huge. So that's one reason. And then also this whole conversation about um, how we need to address and bridge and become more aware of um, supporting each other as women while really understanding our differences and the differences that in particular white women need to understand more about um, when they think about supporting other women and um, being in solidarity with other women. So we're going to be looking at all of that in that module. So how do you navigate when you're playing big and you're successful and you're taking up a lot of space and you feel that pushback from, from women in a competitive way? I've never, I'm like, I can't think of an instance where I've ever felt that. Wow. There are times when I will feel jealous of other women, mm-hmm. you know, for a particular reason. And then I have like a very clear protocol <laughs> for myself, you know, yeah, like, what do you do? Okay. Let's okay, do, what do you do with that? Yeah. What has been activated in me that I need to pay attention to. And I tend to really try and validate with compassion what's underneath the jealousy, which is like some part of myself usually feels like, well, I want to, I want to do that, but I haven't given myself permission yet. Or I want to you know, this thing in my life to work out that particular Mm -hmm. way. And it didn't. So I see it as a real prompt to return my focus inward and work Mm -hmm. with that unmet need in myself and then just like leave that person alone. Um, And I also try to really like not, not gossip, not talk negatively about other people in general. Um, Not, you know, like if I were to go to my friend and relate, about that jealousy or a difficult situation, it would be very much from a like, okay, help me work through this perspective, not a like, let me just vent to you place. Cause I think that just worsens all of this stuff, you know? So yeah, so that's kind of my protocol. If I feel that. And then I guess I very rare. Yeah. What I was thinking of more when I said, I've never felt that is I I've never felt that coming at me. Hmm. And I do make very intuitive, um, kind of relationship choices. So I think if I feel any whiff of off energy, I just kind of don't even get into a point where I'd have to opt out of that relationship because I'm not in it in the first place. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's why. And it makes me think about what you've said about feedback, that feedback says something more about the other person than you. And I would say same thing with jealousy, that jealousy says maybe something more about you than the other person. Right. Like what, what is it that's in, that's in their essence that I'm, that I'm wanting in my life? And actually that's a nice mirror to look at. Like that's an area that I want to grow or an area I want to work on. Or, yeah. And the same thing with competition, where do I feel scarcity in my life that I'm, that I'm feeling someone is like pulling from me as opposed to looking at those areas of scarcity? Yeah. 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 Interesting. I, I have a strong spiritual practice. So in a moment, if I'm jealous, um, you know, a question I would ask myself is, am I like, am I trusting God's path for my life in this moment? And if I'm jealous, I'm not right. Like, so it's actually being disrespectful of the creation that I am. And of course, I'm not perfect at trusting that, but that's what I would try. I'm trying to return to. Yeah. It's back in ego again. Yeah. As I mentioned at the beginning. Yeah. There was something that you said in your interview with the Good Life Project Mm -hmm. that really touched me. And you said, a good life is a life in which your soul learns what has come here to learn. And I'm I'm curious, what, what do you feel that your soul has come to learn or what have you learned about that? 
what your soul mm. has come here to learn. I'm so glad that resonated with you because I feel very emotionally moved by, by that idea, but I kind of feel like sometimes I put it out there yeah. and it doesn't land. So I'm so glad. Yeah. Um, I tend to live that question in a day-to-day way. Um, like as I'm thinking about it now I, and also with my six years of sleep debt, I don't know that I know what my soul came here to learn lifelong, but um, you know, I, what my soul, like right now, I feel like what my soul is learning is that we live in such an abundant whole planet and this incredibly lush giving existence and the that the messages of kind of scarcity and problem and therefore like pain and self-denial a lot of those messages that I was grew up with or that in the culture are just untrue and that there's sort of a way we can all rest in what is and then just do whatever feels joyful from there, that that's actually the truth. Um, very hidden truth in our world right now, but it's the truth. And it's my family life that is really pushing me to see that because I, we're at the stage where we get to choose Um the messages around that, that we want to send our kids with. Yeah. It's like your last chapter of let it be easy. Yeah. And yeah. And that, you know, it can be easy Um, that, you know, I don't mean that to be interpreted. Like, obviously I'm hearing people listening. There's lots of struggle and hardship in life in all of our lives. And, um, but that the narratives we make up, that we, that we need to create struggle, that there needs to be self-denial and self-sacrifice and pain and hardship. And, um, you know, even the smallest thing, like I was, I said to my husband yesterday, is there any legitimate reason that a young child should ever be told, sit down? Like I'm just saying in every classroom and every school, like there, sit down. So Why? Because we believe that there's some sort of self-management denial of that physical impulse that needs to happen in order for them to be educated or in order for them to have a good life. And that's the kind of thing that right now I just feel like I'm questioning, questioning, questioning. And yeah. Yeah. Because then we just end up as adults that are, wish we weren't so sedentary and we're at our walking. We're like so excited when we get a walking desk. I'm like, then why are we telling the five-year-olds to sit down to learn? Yeah. Exactly why I pulled pulled my kid from that sit down school and put him in a stand up school where there's mm. there's tea stools and wobbly things that they sit on and yeah. open tables that they can choose to stand at or bean right. bags you know so making those choices around how how do they want to be in their bodies yeah Absolutely. and that's profound because yeah. it's saying actually we're going to trust the body and its instincts we're not going to make up a story about why we need to override that and they'll pick up the social norms around sitting down soon enough. They have, they have the mirror neurons to do that. So right, I'm not worried right. about exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. I'm not worried about that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tara Moore. Oh, it's thank been you so much. such an honor and delight to mm-hmm. have you here. And I just really um, appreciate you, how you've changed our lives. And it was so fun to read your book again a second time and have such a different view mm-hmm. on it. So I, I look forward to those listeners that have read it, read it again. And I'm sure that a lot of them will be motivated to look more into your work is the best place to look into you on your taramore.com. Yeah, taramore.com. Yeah, Yeah. lots lots of writing and resources there. Yes, you could stay up all night reading reading a blog out there. It's so, Uh, so good. So we'll link to all of that. Thank you too. Thank you for this conversation, for all the thoughtful questions and uh, really the thoughtfulness like that you are bringing to these ideas. And thank you for taking your leap of starting this podcast and bringing more women's voices into the world by by doing that. And thank you for like spreading the word about playing big as you've been doing through this yeah. book. So yeah. this podcast, that's so appreciated too. Great. Wonderful. Take care.
Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. Offtheclockpsych.com.